Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Clarifying Catholicism. You're watching part six of my series, Vatican II's Theology of Other Religions, Discontinuity or Reform. Most of this information is drawn from my master's thesis, which you can find in the description. To see the rest of the videos in this series, check the playlist in the description. Without further ado, on to the show. This episode, we will analyze Lumen Gentium with the same set of criteria that the last episode did with Cantate Domino from the Council of Florence. We will then compare the documents next episode to determine whether or not Vatican II's theology of other religions is discontinuous with that of Florence. In 1959, just three months into his papacy, Pope John XXIII announced that he would convene a council, Vatican II, whose purpose would be to engage the Church with the modern world and modern ways of thinking. At its start, it consisted of 1,041 European bishops, 956 American bishops, 379 African bishops, and 300 Asian bishops, making it by far the most globally diverse council in history. John XXIII also invited expert lay theologians, known as parity, to serve on the council's committees. These parity included many controversial theologians such as Karl Rahner and John Courtney Murray, whose integration of modern philosophy into theology had been criticized by neo-Thomists, the more conservative theologians who thought that the church should stick to theologies and philosophies of the past. Thus, Vatican II was demographically and intellectually diverse on a scale not seen in prior councils. That had not always been the plan, though. According to ecclesiologist Richard Galliardetz, the council's ante-preparatory and preparatory commissions which consisted mostly of bishops from Rome, was offended by John XXIII's request that they consult the global bishops before drafting plans for the council. Conversely, many bishops from across the globe were concerned about the committee's Roman-centric composition. In fact, the response to the preparatory commission's proposed conciliar schema, which, for example, planned for the entire council to be conducted in Latin, from bishops and theologians across the globe, was overwhelmingly negative. Yves Congar, Karl Rahner, and Edward Skilabex were among some of these critics, with the latter requesting that four of the seven schemas be revised. This tension between bishops of the Roman Curia, who tended to be more conservative, and international participants carried into the council. Once the council began, its first order of business was the election of conciliar commissions. The pro-Roman Curia bishops from the ante-preparatory and preparatory commissions were expected to sweep these elections, having conveniently distributed a list of those who had served on those commissions to participants. Cardinal Leonard of Lille, France, objected to this vote, asking if bishops could caucus and propose their own lists of candidates. This request was met with overwhelming applause and likely changed the course of the entire council. In mid-1963, Pope John XXIII wrote Pacem in Terris, an encyclical, which is notably the first encyclical addressed to all men of goodwill rather than simply the Church. Shortly after the encyclical's publication, the Holy Father died. Pope Paul VI succeeded him and inaugurated the second session of the Council in 1963, which dedicated much more time to the ecclesiology document. This eventually became the Constitution Lumen Gentium. 
Much of its development was chronicled by the theologian Yves Congar, a member of the Council's Theological Commission. He wrote about it in his diaries. Like many of the Council's early critics, Congar was initially disdained by the Council's Curia-dominated preparatory commissions. In fact, at a certain part, he even considered resigning. However, Congar accredits the postponement of the conciliar commission vote as the Council's saving grace. And this is what leads us to discuss the section of Lumen Gentium that has come under a lot of scrutiny and criticism from conservative-leaning Catholics. Section 16 of the final document contains a passage pertaining to no salvation outside the Church. Those also can attain to salvation who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his Church, yet sincerely seek God, and moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will, as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. Nor does divine providence deny the helps necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God, and with his grace, strive to live a good life. This passage seemingly contradicts Cantate Domino's claim that all non-baptized, regardless of their deeds, even if they shed their blood in the name of Christ, will burn in the eternal fires of hell. We will evaluate Lumen Gentium by the same seven criteria that we did to Cantate Domino last episode. Number one, source of statement. Who's issuing the statement? Each document of the Second Vatican Council was composed by commissions that included a diverse mixture of bishops and theologians. A document's final approval required a two-thirds majority vote from the bishops, though amazingly the narrowest a vote ever got was 93% approval, 7% disapproval. Each document also required the Holy Father's approval. Lumen Gentium was approved by a vote of 2,151 to 5, an astonishing 99.7% in approval and 0.3% in disapproval. It was, of course, approved by Pope Paul VI. As mentioned in the chapter's introduction, the Council's geographical representation was unprecedented. Given the difficult requirements for the approval of this document, as well as the Council's composition, it is clear that the source of Lumen Gentium is the College of Bishops in unison with the Pope. Number two. Type of statement. What degree of certainty does this statement hold? Joseph Kelly notes how Vatican II was the first ecumenical council to not use any canons or anathemas when issuing doctrinal statements. This reflected John XXIII's desire to focus on using the language of mercy rather than a harsh condemnatory tone. Years later, in an address to a general audience, Pope Paul VI reflected, given the pastoral character of the council, it avoided pronouncing in an extraordinary way dogmas endowed with the note of infallibility. This corresponds to a passage from Lumen Gentium's appendix, which was written in a response to inquiries about the Constitution's magisterial weight and published alongside Lumen Gentium in the Acta Apostolice Sedis. Taking into account conciliar practice and the pastoral purpose of the present council, the sacred synod defined as binding on the church only those matters of faith and morals which it has expressly put forward as such. Since Lumen Gentium does not invoke the language of anathemas and canons that are traditionally associated with binding doctrines, it might appear that its theology merely represents general theological opinions, or sententia ad fidem pertinens. However, its documents required the near consensus of a virtually universal group of bishops, 
So perhaps it would be more appropriate to categorize them as coming from the universal ordinary magisterium, which is often associated with the sententia fide proxima level. This would allow for the council to avoid making definitive pronouncements that are associated with canons and anathemas while still binding the faithful to obey them. In other words, Lumen Gentium may have issued authoritative but non-definitive statements, meaning it doesn't definitively settle a theological question, but it still requires all Catholics to obey its teachings. Furthermore, according to the 1985 Extraordinary Session of the Synod of Bishops, which clarified the interpretation of Vatican II's documents, Lumen Gentium's status as a dogmatic constitution means its ideas and themes are essential in interpreting the entire council. A rejection of Lumen Gentium inevitably jeopardizes the rest of the council's teachings. Therefore, given the universal agreement among bishops at the council, as well as the 1985 synod's emphasis on its status as a dogmatic constitution, I categorize Lumen Gentium as containing Sententia Fide Proxima teaching. You can learn more about what that category means in our past episodes, but essentially it refers to a universally held opinion of the bishops that must be obeyed by all of the faithful. Number three, intention of statement. What is this statement trying to accomplish? Lumen Gentium is primarily concerned with ecclesiology. It answers the question, who is the people of God? By describing how different groups of people are related to the church. First, it affirms that the Church of Christ subsists, or most fully exists, in the Roman Catholic Church. Then it describes how other Christian churches are in partial unity with the church through their sacraments. Section 16 explores the role that other religions play in relation to the church. According to Yves Congar, the chapter containing Section 16 involved an immense amount of care and attention. Joseph Kelly acknowledges how the subject of other religions was pervasive throughout the entirety of the Council, making the passage crucial to the Council's desire to directly comment on other religions. It affirms that people who have not yet received the Gospel are ordered towards God's people, and that those who are ignorant of the Gospel through no fault of their own can be saved. Furthermore, other religions can prepare their followers to receive the Gospel, though they must still be preached to. Lumen Gentium 16's intention, therefore, is to address the relationship between Catholicism and non-Christian religions, and comment on their members' potency for salvation. Number four, assumptions and statement. What changeable and unchangeable assumptions are made in this statement? As mentioned in chapter three's analysis of Florence's reception, the church's understanding of other religions vastly changed between the Middle Ages and the 1960s. Gavin DaCosta writes, a historical change of perception of these religions, not a change of doctrine about them as such, was a key factor affecting the council documents. According to DaCosta, the historically earlier words Jews and Muslims involved explicit heresy and perversion. The later use of the words Jews and Muslims does not. This supports the idea that the concept of Jew and pagan that were condemned by Florence are fundamentally different than the modern church's concept of a Jew and a pagan. Perhaps most emblematic of this shift was John XXIII's experience as the apostolic delegate to Turkey and Greece, which Kelly describes, his experience in this diplomatic post 
led him to see Jews, Muslims, and Orthodox Christians not as infidels and schismatics, but as good, often pious people loved by God and hopeful of salvation. But what historical events changed these concepts? As Jacques Dupuy writes, barriers had began to crumble and communication was gradually developing, which brought home a new awareness of what other traditions proposed to their adherents by way of salvation and liberation. Additionally, the Second World War's display of cruelty to other religions, especially by Nazi Germany to the Jews, not only demonstrated the horrific effects of religious persecution, but it encouraged the church to seek solidarity with other religious groups who sought to combat the rise of atheist empires like the Soviet Union and Maoist China. Furthermore, the United States demonstrated that not only was religious diversity possible in society, but that the Catholic faith could thrive in such an environment. Another significant change was the average Western citizen's level of education. By the mid-20th century, the median education level of the laity was far higher than that of their medieval counterparts. While technology made it far easier for people to learn about Christianity, the religions splintering into many denominations and declining influence in academia made it far more difficult to know about Catholicism. As mentioned in episode 3, Francisco de Vitoria wrote in 1539, It is rash and imprudent of anyone to believe something especially in matters such as these concerning salvation, unless one knows it to be from a trustworthy source. Applying Florentine expectations to 20th century Catholics seems wildly inappropriate. Thus, between political, social, and education shifts, the Church's historical experience with other religions had vastly changed, necessitating a refined expression and application of its theology of other religions. Number five scope, to whom was the statement addressed. The Second Vatican Council was not only directed at the entire church, but some of its documents, such as Gaudium et Spes, were directed at the entire world. It has already been argued that this council, perhaps more than any other in the past, embodied the universality of the Catholic faith in consensus of its approved documents. Number six, reception of statement. How did other authorities immediately react to this statement? Given its recent status, Lumen Gentium's reception is still ongoing, though hardly any high-level ecclesial authorities have doubted its validity. The few who have were harshly rebuked by the magisterium, such as Pope John Paul II's excommunication of former Bishop Marcel Lefebvre. Conversely, as mentioned in episode 1, some theologians interpret Vatican II as the beginning of a dynamic movement rather than as an event that issued authoritative documents. They claim that the Council was not progressive enough in its statements on other religions and that the spirit of the Council demanded the Church go beyond the constraints on it placed by traditionalists. Pope Benedict XVI rebuked these critics in one of his Christmas addresses, stating, in this way, obviously, a vast margin was left open for the question of how this spirit should be subsequently defined, and room was consequently made for every whim. In 2021, Pope Francis stated, Vatican II is magisterium. Either you are with the Church, and therefore you follow the Council, or if you do not follow the Council, or you interpret it in your own way as you wish, you are not with the Church. It has hardly been 50 years since the Council's closure, 
though it is notable how the post-conciliar popes since then have defended it from both traditionalists and progressivist attacks. Number seven, relation to other statements. What preceding statements could qualify, modify, or nuance the statement? Lumen Gentium, like all Vatican II documents, contains an abundance of citations, precisely 304 of them. The document is largely built on Thomas Aquinas' soteriology, reaffirming the necessity of the Church for salvation while leaving room for invincible ignorance, or the idea that one can be saved while they are innocently ignorant of the Gospel message. The Council generally portrays other religions in a more positive light, invoking the Thomistic idea of ordinatur to describe their beliefs as intrinsically ordered to God. As Professor Wilhelmus Valkenberg, my thesis advisor, notes, this ordering towards the Church is not only a preparation for the Gospel, as is often suggested, but that there is already a potential relationship thanks to the power of grace of Christ. So, Christ is somehow potentially present in these relationships. Aquinas writes, those who are unbaptized, though not actually in the Church, are in the Church potentially. And this potentiality is rooted in two things. First, and principally, in the power of Christ, which is sufficient for the salvation of the whole human race. Secondly, in free will. Lumen Gentium's teaching on other religions is also largely influenced by colonial-era theologians whose horizons were expanded by the discovery of the New World. Furthermore, the Council's newfound appreciation of modern philosophy led to new insights from theologians like Yves Gungar. Between Thomas Aquinas' colonial-era theologians and modern theologians, Lumen Gentium 16 is largely rooted and supported by previous theological ideas. Lumen Gentium 16 holds considerable magisterial weight in its theology of other religions. It was carefully crafted by a commission of bishops and theologians, approved by a consensus of bishops from across the world and in unison with the Pope, contains Sententia Fidei Proxima teachings, intends to comment directly on the relationship between Catholicism and other religions, operates with a historically refined concept of other religions, teaches to the universal church, has been persistently defended by subsequent popes, and relies on an impressive library of references to justify its teachings. For Lumen Gentium to be discontinuous with Florence, it would have to disagree with its teachings in every single one of these categories, and we will investigate that in our next episode. Thank you very much. Have a great day. God bless you.